As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. This is Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. So turn up your Walkman, loosen that scrunchie, and get ready to talk 80s with your host, Lindsay Parker. Hi, I'm Lindsay Parker from Yahoo Entertainment and Sirius XM Volume, and welcome to another episode of Totally 80s. We love hearing from you, so why not take a second to follow us at Totally 80s on Facebook and Instagram, or email us your comments and show ideas to podcast at totally80s.com. And just a reminder, if you want to see our faces, you can also catch this episode on video on our Totally 80s YouTube channel, so go there and check that out. And joining me today, as always, is my partner in all things 80s, the differed to my Tilbrook, John Hughes. Hi, Lindsay. That's what I like about you. You know, I think we're getting the knack for this podcasting thing. Uh, hmm. uh i'm trying to think of a cheap trick song real quick to make a reference to tonight it's hey. you oh. tonight it's you john but it's not just you we have a guest so people all these have been hints we're not real subtle with our hints are we obviously today's episode is about power pop and the guest we have today along if okay would this be the Jules Holland to our different in Tilbrook? Who would be our, th- our third person? This Our special guest today is a musician, songwriter, journalist, and author who has written biographies for Bare Naked Ladies, Todd Rundgren, and a personal favorite of John's, The Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy. Love he that. Also- I need to check that out. He also hosts the Record Store Day podcast, where he has welcomed such folks as Sparks, Fred Armisen, Questlove, Matthew Sweet, and many more. And he, alongside S.W. Lawton, quite literally co-wrote and co-edited the books on Power Pop, titled Go All the Way, A Literary Appreciation of Power Pop, and its sequel, Go Further, More Literary Appreciations of Power Pop, Electric Boogaloo. To something like that. I have to do that to every single. That's a different down, but we'll talk about this some other time. So that's why he is here today to talk about power pop with us, specifically, of course, power pop of the 1980s. We are very happy to welcome to Totally 80s, Paul Myers. Hey. Hello. Hi. Good to be here. It's going to be a powerful conversation. <laughs> Well, you know, we should probably just jump right into it because I am a mem- member of a very uh, well-trafficked, very he- hundreds, thousands of people. It's a power pop group on Facebook. And everyone just spends most of the time arguing about what power pop is. It's a genre that's hard to define. You know it when you hear it, but you don't always know how to explain it. As we mentioned, you quite literally wrote the book on the genre. So how are we defining power pop today? Well, uh, I thought I would read an excerpt that I wrote from the very introduction of Go All the Way, the first volume. Yeah. And I, I won't read the whole thing, but I'll just read you what I wrote for this. Uh, this is about a parody, if you don't mind, a recitation, oh. if you will. No, okay. man. I mean, this okay. is this is the, the textbook on it. Let's do it. Okay, here we go. For me, explaining the meaning of power pop is lo- a little like explaining what love is. You know it when you feel it, but damn if it's not different for everyone who experiences it. As a songwriter, I've always had a special place in my heart for what I defined as power pop. 
and it has always made me feel young and excited, swept up in the euphoric spell of the eternal now. It's Friday or Saturday night. You just got paid. That girl or guy from school just saw you at the mall, and the limitless potential for adventure is laid out before you like a chiming Rickenbacker guitar. That's uh, that's wow. a little it's a little purple. It's a little purple, but it is it it has a hook. So there you go. <laughs> I'm into it. I'm into it. So why is it that there are quite literally debates on Facebook about it, or so many people have different ideas of, of what it is. And it's this whole, like, I know it when I hear it, I know it when I feel it other genres, it's pretty obvious. Like it's not, there's, I can't think of another genre where people debate so much, except maybe goth music, what it is. You know, I mean, Steve, Steve Lawden and I talk about this, my co-editor and co-curator, uh, one of the things we talk about is the fact that it, there's a, a, a point of entry. So if you got into power pop, like some people will talk about Blink-182 as a power pop band. And I can sort of see that. There'll be I other think, people who would just be think that's ultimate blasphemy. Exactly. And then there's, then there's, there's, there's this, and I hate to say it, I hate to get right to it, but then there's this bizarre racial sort of bias. It's like five white, four white guys playing bass, guitars, and drums, and that's it. And mm. so and as we talk about in the second edition, go further, you know, Puffy Amayumi, this Japanese pop pop band, which I think were power pop in their own way. And they certainly I mean, have, they have got jellyfish yeah, ties. Exactly. You took the words. There you go. Right. And no, no, that's fine. That's no, fine. That's the point. And that's the point. And she and Andrea Warner, who is like a really not a power pop author, she she took on this whole idea of the sort of cultural sort of bias that people bring to the, you know, the way th Puffy was viewed as this like, you know, cutesy pop girls when in fact there's some pretty great hooks and they're great songwriters and, and, you know, and, and, you know, just that sort of thing. So those discussions, I'm really excited that they've come up in the various different authors that we've had contribute. Our, our main rule was I want, we both want people that write in a writerly way about the genre, but also not doing the usual Here's the history of the of the Rembrandts or something like that. <laughs> it, it's kind of like stories that are of, of like, you know, literary value to some degree. Some of them are historical, like Annie Zaleski writes about jellyfish in volume one. And it's very much a story of jellyfish, but it's through the context of when they leave the charts to go into the power pop underground. And when people become in the charts, do they lose their underground status? And is there an underground thing that's an imperative is it only power pop if nobody buys it? Like, well, I mean <laughs> let's, that's a very interesting point that I actually was going to bring up. So I'm glad you did. So in your, in your book, I'm looking at it right now. It's talking about the elements of power pop, which all sound like things that would make it very commercially appealing. The number one is tunefulness. Okay. Tunefulness is usually a requirement for a hit single, uh, you know, lyrics that counterpoint happy sounding music with yearning or melancholy. Again, that could describe a lot of hit singles. Uh, concision jangle these are all things you know that are brought up and also the word pop isn't it okay which is short <laughs> for popular so this yeah. is all counterintuitive that when we get down to it you know there's a lot of talk about like you know is being called power pop kind of the kiss of death are power pop bands doomed there are some that are very successful and i would actually argue that some of the most successful power pop bands were actually ones even though we a lot of people associate power pop its genesis or its golden era with the 70s i would actually say the 80s might have been the most com commercially fruitful time and we'll get into that in a moment but for every commercially successful power pop band that there is in the 80s or otherwise there are dozens hundreds that just aren't that remain cult bands cult favorites fan favorites so why is that with all the things i just laid out about like it seems like power pop should have a very wide 
you know, mainstream audience. It very often does not. I think there's, it's a, I described it as being like rockabilly mm -hmm. in the sense that, you know, you have those rockabilly truck meets and car meets and people are getting invested in the style of rockabilly and the look of rockabilly. And I think there's a point where it just becomes like there's people see it as a limited set of values. Hmm. And, but part of that is its cultness. So there's a, there's a fine line, for instance, between what they call like uh, jangle rock from LA and power pop. And there's arguments because the janglers hate the power pop term. Man, and, this and, is a divisive group. It's like the sharks yeah. and the jets. <laughs> no, I mean, and you know, Rick Mank, who's a, an incredible scholar on rock and roll and a great drummer and played on all the greats like Matthew Sweet, Velvet Crush. Mm -hmm. And he's played with Stephen Duffy. He's played with uh, Joe Pernice. He's, he's, a, he's a really great authority on this stuff and a huge record guy. He kind of, I think I got a vibe from him that he didn't really dig the term power pop. You know, even though Matthew probably gets a million people at the gigs, or not a million, but thousands of people at the gigs wanting to identify him as power pop. And maybe that's the reason. I don't know what this is. I mean, this is something I'd like to talk to Rick about. But, and I, like I, 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 like I said, I have huge respect for Rick from where he's coming from. So I don't, I don't, you know, I don't come to bury Rick so much as I'm just curious about this conversation. Mar Marshall Crenshaw hates the term and gets a lot mad of people, at people. I mean, this yeah, is a common thing. There's disco bands that don't like to be called disco bands. will say, no, we're a funk band. There are goth bands, the cure even, you know, that will say we are not goth. And then, yeah, there are power pop bands when, you know, like we say, when we hear it, we know it, we know it's power pop. I don't like, the, but the disco yet. analogy is really good. The disco analogy. I, I've never thought of it before, but I remember now Rogers, uh, I've interviewed him a couple of times and he of course remembers, you know, the largely racially motivated anti-disco mo movement mm -hmm. and Sheik who were progenitors of disco music kept saying, we're a funky dance band. We're a pop band that has funky danceable songs. Don't call us disco because disco was disco duck and Saturday night fever's image was, you know, uh, shallow. And, and so, but inversely, this is the thing. It's a lot of power pop bands. When the vibe comes around again, a lot of times people go, well, yeah, we're power pop, you know, like <laughs> in the same way that maybe Nile today claims disco, um, mm. you know, and, you know, and Daft Punk would claim disco now, you know, or yeah. did until they stopped being a band, um, you know, and I think that there's a little bit of that too. And I don't understand it. It, to me, I would, I'm, I think I'm supposed to be some kind of expert, but I think it is evolving. Well, and that's partly why, that's there why are you're on volumes. the show. But that's why there's two <laughs> volumes of these. There's got to be a third, I guess, right? I, I would hope. I wonder if it starts at the genesis, like way back with the raspberries and, and, and people like that being branded uh, somewhat rightly so as bubblegum because mm. it was super catchy. It was on AM radio at the time. And yeah. they didn't have that credibility as like a Rolling Stones or something like that. That's like pure straight ahead rock. And, uh, you know, it, I would argue the Partridge family is almost power pop in a lot of respects. Uh, so I wonder if that carried all the way music over. for kids. Yeah. Well, it carried all the way over to the neck, right? As the seventies ended and the eighties, mm -hmm. began, there was such a, a nuke the knack backlash because it came to uh, people felt too soon uh, without earning their stripes, et cetera. All the things that were tossed at them. Well, let's talk about that. Cause I was actually going to bring up the knack. We made a knack 
pun at the top of this as I want to do. And, and Paul, you are an expert. That is why you're on the show. So we're going to direct a lot of questions to you. You literally, you know, curated the two books, you know, you know what you're talking about. So we're going to start. I know some stuff. Yeah. So obviously this is totally eighties podcast, but as I'm, you know, so we're mentioned going to focus obviously on bands from the eighties, but you know, 1979 was just one year before. And you could argue, I would argue, but I'll let you, you know, make the expert argument that the eighties power pop, I don't know if craze, maybe that's a, a, a too enthusiastic a word, but the boom, I think there was a bit of boom of power pop in the 80s. There were, as I just mentioned, a lot of power pop bands in the 80s that were huge, very commercially successful and crossed over and were gaining MTV play. But would you say that the, as short-lived as it may have been, the initial massive success of the Nat? in 1979 kind of laid the groundwork for that because suddenly it seemed like every major label much like in seattle in the 1990s we're looking for the next nirvana it seemed like in la every major label was scouting for the next band in a skinny tie there was i think in your book it calls it a new hope like this was power pop bands that sounded <laughs> and looked like the knack with short hair and skinny ties and suits and a kind of new waviness yeah. to them that was going to be the next big thing right yeah yeah i mean and even even the early marketing or the early image of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, there were skinny ties worn and those Rickenbackers that chime in and, mm-hmm. uh, and a big birds like tunes, you know, and, and, and there's, there's that post Beatles, post revolver element to power pop uh, that uh, I, I think I'm going to say, I'm going to make a judgment at its worst it's all style and no content when people are just wearing the skinny tie. And, you know, frankly, a lot of bands that had been had heavy metal hair the week before suddenly had <laughs> mullets mm-hmm. and they because they couldn't cut off all their hair, but they would like, <laughs> leave the back long. But they would and like what they I wanted to, to keep the party in the back. Exactly. Yes. And business up front. But they they um they, a lot of those guys, they used to call them stereo salesmen because uh, <laughs> you'd, you'd go into one of those Radio Shack or something places and all of a sudden all the, the dudes were suddenly uh, new wave looking, you know, <laughs> because they heard the cars. Yeah. You know? mm. Well, let's talk about. And OK, the cars so the ne- an interesting thing is, yeah, the cars are a Trojan horse. Is what that, they are, that's what you know? I'm going to ask you, because a lot of they get tagged with new wave, but they're kind of power pop. Really? New, new wave and power pop yeah. are um, they're um, they're in the same lane. Mm-hmm. And I think there are times when New Wave goes away more towards an Eno thing, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, more towards like a Gary Newman thing. But then there are songs within the New Wave that were pure power pop. But, you know, there's also songs in every genre that end up being power pop every so often. You can adopt a power pop sound and not be a power pop band. So definitely I want to talk about, like I said, the more commercially successful bands of the 80s that could be in some way broadly or not classified as power pop. And definitely the cars are one of them. But before we go into that, to put a bow on the whole knack thing, because everybody got the knack and then they didn't get it and then they didn't want it. And, you know, the knack had like basically I mean, I don't consider them a one hit wonder, but they basically had one massive hit song. Why? Where was there that backlash? Why was it like this new hope? And then it was nope. I, I've got thoughts, but I'll let Paul go first. <laughs> uh, no, you go first, John. Well, the second album was mm. a Xerox of the first. Uh, mm. and But the little girls understand came out in 1980. So we're right in where we need to be now. And you had the first single, Baby Talks Dirty. It was a complete rewrite of my Sharona. And they also, those lyrics, dude, they did not age well. These Lolita lyrics have got to go. Doug Figer got hit a lot for that, but I think a little unfairly, he wasn't the only one writing stuff like that in 1980 and 1979. I mean, to single him out. 
literally dating a 16 year old named Sharona though well, when he was like 25 or something <laughs> anyway you know I mean you know yeah it was a different time but definitely it was maybe the fact that it wasn't just one song it was a yeah it was you just, just you just met you know there was my Sharona and the little girls understand right. baby talks dirty uh, good girls don't like every song was kind of the schoolgirl Lolita thing jailbait thing it was it was a lot it was it was very one track minded let me just say that yeah, but you, it, that, you don't think that had anything to do with it? Oh, I think it had. I mean, the Rolling Stone reviews were just brutal about the lyrics. So, no, mm -hmm. I it had a lot to do with it. I think it was also just taking that first album, slapping it on the copy machine and hitting copy uh, didn't help because there was neat stuff in the third album. Round Trip is amazing. You know, they grew up. They were really stung. They were really beaten down by the industry. And they kind of came out with this really contrite uh we're sorry record with a horrible <laughs> pick for our first single uh Ubi, mm. why would you pick a a country waltz for your first single i, I don't know <laughs> i wasn't at capital at the time but, <laughs> uh it's it's a sad story because they had a little bit of a comeback in the late 80s early 90s with that really great album uh uh rocket of love and uh some great, great songs but you know it's a it was a cautionary tale for a lot of this stuff and so you know you i think it was also jealousy a lot of people in la were like hey how come these guys got everything and poor 2020 and uh the beat are sitting over here going hey we have great songs too we're wearing skinny ties i'm not sure but i think just really xeroxing that first album is a big big error Paul? We don't know. We don't know why they did it. I mean, someone knows why. I haven't really researched it, but it would seem to me that you know, a lot of times, you know, especially at Capital in those days, there was probably a feeling that we got to get it out fast and make it the same. And maybe Doug and the boys just said, you know what? Like, sure, this will buy us some time. We're on the road. We're we're still riding the Sharona wave. Let's make this record and get it out there. And and they probably when they did that third record, they were probably thinking, OK, now we have a chance to rethink this. And if anything, that single might have been um, a deliberate way of saying, look, we're not just this thing. In fact, we're not what you think we are. And if it had worked and yeah. if it had worked, they would have, you know, we eat like kings, you know, then it's like like all the great bands like Squeeze and XTC who had records that sounded different every time out. You mm -hmm. know, so well, they, they do say, you know, that they had written. The, all the material for the first and second album at the same time. The first album was going to be a double album at one point. So, mm. you know, oh, it kinda, well. yeah, it kind of goes in there, but I, I really think it was just because that first album came, the second album came out less than a year than the first. People forget that. Yeah, that's a, that was, that's a really, you know, power pop aside, just in general, that's such a common story in the industry when you think of from the 60s, 70s and 80s where, you know, the, a band is still riding high and artists is still riding high on, you know, their debut album is still in the charts yeah. and already they're being hassled to write a second record. And most of the time it's not as good. Can you think of it? You know, it's like, it, I can't think of an example where someone rushed out their second record and it was better than their first or as good. As Elvis Costello, my yeah. uh, okay. Elvis Costello, power yeah, yeah. pop God that he is. Well, let's get this into talking. To was, yeah. Much better okay. record than the first one. I think in some ways, you know, well, let's obviously all, a lot of the people we just mentioned, Elvis Costello, squeeze XCC are definitely going to be taught. Let's talk about some of the longer lasting success stories of eighties power pop. But I, is there any more thoughts about the cars? Because again, we could debate whether they are power pop or not. I certainly, think a song like you might think which was i know a later song for them but you know 
one of their bigger hits because it was like, you know, swept the VMAs uh, and stuff yeah. like that in 1984. I mean, that's a pure power pop song to me. Well, but what elements did they take of power pop that they incorporated into, into uh, with other things that made it maybe a little more palatable for a mainstream audience, an MTV audience? Because they were huge. Another great example of a, a second record that came out right after the first. I mean, I think. OK, I, there you yeah. go. I stand corrected. There you go. Mm, yeah. The, the, uh, the, I want to follow up on this Cars idea of them being a Trojan horse band because what they were was they were literally the first sort of post-New Wave band for everybody. Like, because they had the heavy guitars, you know, Roy Thomas Baker doing the multiple, multiple vocal layering and it was a mega sounding record. record. Radio loved it, you know, because it was full and, and rocking. But it was also nimble and smart and informed of the New Wave and had straight up hooks, which made it kind of slightly retro, which is which is which was an appealing power pop thing as well as a new wave thing. And it was just it was super smart. Like, in fact, I don't think it was designed by a committee. But <laughs> if you were if you had spat out a computer program, it would have made the cars because the and, and the elements. But the thing was, it was a real band. It might have been one of the last of its kind, like mm -hmm. a real band where you had Greg Hawks lay, laying down the modernistic synthesizers. Uh, Rick singing in that post new wave style of, you know, very hiccupy, almost Lou Reed at times. And, you know, Ben Orr being totally like, you know, the, the heartthrob with the smooth vocals, but, you know, and they had the new wave hair and, you know, the whole thing. And, you know, Robinson, the d drummer had been in the, in the modern lovers, you know, they had a pedigree and they were, you know, they were out of Boston where you had to be real, you know? And, and so, so there was something really solid about them that appealed to everybody and um, in that way, they 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 brought in hooks, which is a power pop thing. So that's the elements that I think are power pop is multiple harmonies. Uh, power pop. One of the things I always love about har pop, power pop is something like uh, Todd Rundgren's "Couldn't I Just Tell You," which is mm. you know big chunky guitars like a like post the Who, you know something like that. I mean, "Pictures of Lily" by the Who is a power pop song to me. To me, um, and 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 so the idea of multiple harmonies and chugging straight eighth notes. Those are the original sort of power pop uh, elements to me. And I still identify those kinds of songs as being power pop, some of the cheap trick material. Yeah, I had the great pleasure of working with Rick Okasik on the reissues. Uh, the oh, reissues and I produced those reissues and wow. uh, had many, many long conversations with him. And Paul, you're more right than you think. Uh, the word calculated was never used, but in a lot of many interviews I did with him for the marketing around those reissues, it was definitely looking at what was happening, going back on his childhood love of Buddy Holly, but also he loved Iggy Pop. He liked what was happening over here with suicide and people like that. So it was very much looking at what was going on and saying, how can we got to make it guys? How can we make it? And they put it all into this, this mix and out came that cars debut album, which basically could be called cars greatest hits. I mean, several of their albums could be the next album could be Cars Greatest Hits Volume Two. But yes, they they definitely Trojan Horse. I love I love that analogy. But I do want to talk about Cheap Trick because oh yeah, ob obviously you talk about heartthrobs. You got two of them in the band. But yeah. although a lot of people, a lot of fans would probably understandably say that their heyday was the seventies, the late seventies, you know, but they did put out a lot of amazing albums and songs in the eighties, some of which got overlooked. But overall decades aside but just talking about overall career arc would you say that cheap trick is the most commercially successful power pop band 
Um, well, I mean, not counting 60s because, you know, you're talking about people like The Who and The Kinks, but like just in general, like a band that is just like very classified as power pop. I think Cheap Trick might be the most successful one. I I think, you know, if you look at a song like Surrender, which to me is that is a power pop song. I mean, and people might not want to call it that, you know, they might be the Cheap Trick fans who are like their Midwestern rock fans who think like you know this is just good midwestern rock shut up with that power pop thing you know and you know but i mean their roots are things like the move and and they were listening to the naz you know they were they were informed of all those things and i think this is this is coming up a lot right i keep saying they're informed by because there's a lot of referentialness (laughs) referentiality is that the word yeah in, Mm -hmm. in power pop power pop is a lot about musically it's a lot about referencing it's a lot about give me that uh 12 string guitar from uh, you know, Roger McGuinn, give me those uh, harmonies from the Beatles. Give me that uh, drum, crunchy drum sound from, uh, I don't know, from some, like the who, you know, mm-hmm. and, and, and those elements, I mean, I think it was the who might've been the term. The, I, I, I should know this. I believe where there's an argument, but the power pop, the term was originally something that Pete Townsend was talking about, you know, wow. he wow. wanted to be you know, power pop, you know, and then, and then, you know, then of course other songs came out, but I mean, definitely the prototype for me is also the Naz's uh, um, "Open My Eyes," which it, it, I mean, it's kind of a heavy, sp- spacey rock song. But it, you know, like there's there's definitely elements. Certainly, by the time Todd Rundgren did "Couldn't I Just Tell You," which is, you know, that's one of the great lost Who songs, as far as I'm concerned. You know, so so it's 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 uh, anyway. I'm getting off topic. Well, but cheap trick, cheap trick, definitely. Uh, they brought it back and made it uh, all right. You know, it, ma- it made it all right to be that kind of euphoric. Uh, oh, oh, candy. You know, the oh, candy is a great power pop song. You know, I mean, but, like, you know. But since this is the totally 80s podcast, most right. of the things we're talking about just now about Cheat Trick have been 70s songs, which is understandable. You know, okay. best live album of all time, in my opinion, is Budokan. Don't at me. I'm right. It's true. But anyway, I don't know if people give the 80s stuff it's due because, you know, a lot of people, you know, in the eighties, you know, let's face it, cheap trick got a little inconsistent. They did have some clunkers in the mix and they did, you know, they've had their ups and downs in their career, but I want to talk about some of their 80s stuff. I mean, they've had a lot of great singles tonight. It's you, I can't take it, but I, and I know John will get behind me on this. We'll see how Paul feels about this. Bizarrely, aside from Budokan, the live album, when I pull out a cheap trick record to listen to, it's one-on-one, which is what, 1980? John, what year is that, 82, 81? That's 83. And wow, okay. It was very Roy Thomas Baker. That's why I like it. Uh, it's yeah. uh, it's almost a Cars record, honestly. Uh, <laughs> it, but people, like, probably, that's, most people would probably not cite that as, like, one of the great Cheap Trick records. But, like, two of my favorite Cheap Trick songs are She's Tight, which mm-hmm. we all know, if we're talking about being referential, we all know Poison heard that song when they wrote Talk Dirty to Me. I mean, that's a fact. And then If You Want My Love, which is, of course, like a beautiful Beatlesque love song. It's a Beatles song. It's a Beatles song. <laughs> yeah. So well, let's talk about the one-on-one album first. What, well, before we get to one-on-one, I think Cheap Trick stumbled out of the gate in the 80s. They had that George Martin produced record. Uh, Next Position, know. please. No, 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 that was the Todd Rundgren one. That's okay. Tough. Wow, they worked with some great producers, didn't yeah. they? Well, they were searching. They were they were yeah. trying to they were going. How do we do that? They they left the whole Tom Werman scene, and they were trying to find the 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 person who was going to turn them around. And in those days, it was dudes. Uh, but you know, they were finding the next dude to produce them, and it was all they were like it's the biggest names. We're going to get them all, you know. And then yeah, but go ahead. You wanted to say John? Well, 
on paper, George Martin, the Beatles producer, producing Cheap Trick, a Beatles-influenced band, yeah. oh, it's going to be great. And then you have the the leadoff single, Stop This Game. Which, which which album was this? Uh, the, doc, the Doctor? All Shook Up. Uh, great cover. I mean, the cover belies what lies in, within. You know, you look at this cover, and it's, it's very 1980. It's very uh, new wave, and we're heading in there. And then you just get, you know, this uninspired set of songs. I don't know if they were burnt out or what. But one-on-one -on -one is amazing right you know you even have a a, a, a an electro song on there uh, i won't be man you know, oh, saturday, no, saturday, midnight. saturday at midnight which has a <laughs> mix by the way i don't know if you ever knew that <laughs> i was unaware of that they actually hit the billboard dance chart with saturday at midnight the, the extended mix so oh, wow, i didn't okay. know that yeah i didn't even know that crazy yeah. So it, it's just such a great album. And I think they really benefited from MTV at that time. Uh, those right. two videos were on a loop. Can I tell you a funny story about that directly related to that? So I was watching MTV back then and I was watching it in my parents' room and my mom came in with laundry or whatever. And, you know, she always was kind of making fun of the, the boys on MTV that, you know, the pretty boys on MTV right. that I found attractive, like you like this. And she, the, um, if you want my love video came on and there was, you know, beautiful golden God, Robin Zander with his slightly shorter hair and a suit on. And my mom just stopped at attraction. She's like, okay, who is this? <laughs> She's like, this one is handsome. She's like, is this one of the ones you like? And I'm like, yeah, mom, that's Robin Sander. He's really hot. And she's like, <laughs> this one, I understand. So yeah, they, and they had that formula. He was in, you know, Tinted Windows, a band we've talked about before with, you know, the great Adam Schlesinger put together with Bunny Carlos and Cheat oh, Trick yeah. and, and Taylor Hansen, who is actually quite a Robin Zander-ish in looks and James oh, absolutely. Eha. Absolutely. Yeah. But this formula they had of how they sounded, but also kind of their image, like two kind of normal guys or two, two every man. And then like two heartthrobs and, you know, like yeah. the image was, you know, the, the jokiness that, that Rick and bunny brought with their image, but then like the prettiness that the other two brought, like they, I, mean, I don't know if they did anything and it was made in a lab. I don't know how calculated they were, but it worked. It worked for, and I do feel that they, I don't know. I, I don't I don't know why that didn't really continue for them. Of course, they did have some hits later in the 80s. The Flame was a big hit in their um, Elvis cover. What Elvis cover was it? Don't Be Cruel. Don't Be Cruel, yeah. But yeah, it seems like their 80s stuff was inconsistent and they had their moments, but they didn't quite keep up keep up what they'd started in the 70s. But one on one, I think is a perfect record. I don't know why they never worked with Roy Thomas Baker again, because they seem to really enjoy it. There is on YouTube, there is a, a video of them doing a live performance from that era for, on some show. I'm trying to figure out what show it's from, but Roy Thomas Baker is the host. And wow. Really? <laughs> and he's on stage with them, introducing them. It's super awkward. It's amazing. You got to see it. Uh, That's I need to find this. Is okay. it on YouTube? So, yeah. Sidebar. Uh, the golden era of of producers as as like you know fly, flying squadron captains. The idea that you would front with your producer, uh, like that you would like bring your name producer out as though it was like a director of a film. You know, like here's Quentin Tarantino to introduce the new film. You know, and 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 you know that's definitely something that we've like. I wrote this book about Todd Rundgren, and one of the things I, I said was he was from the golden age of producers. You know, when you had mega king producers, you know, who were you know, uh, uh, you know, like he, he, his name on a record in, I'm not going on a Todd tangent here, I hope, 
but but that's all right if record, you do it's quite all right on a record was one of those things like george martin wasn't like ray thomas baker was well that's and, interesting paul yeah. what are some other of the power pop genre specifically of the 80s were there other producers that were sort of like those marquee level producers you know uh, uh was it jimmy einer who did the the raspberries might have been one of the ones I, mike I think. chapman mike oh chapman. Duh. of course mike of course. chapman duh, it's right in front of us all yeah yeah, yeah because all uh, and, and uh, Richard uh, Richard Goddard. Yeah, Sorry, well, yeah. that's actually something I wanted to bring up because that's a perfect segue to the next band I wanted to bring up. Because you were talking about how, like, when it came to producers, it was mostly about dudes, and it, you know, quite frankly, still is. But yeah, when I look at some of the great, no, no, it's just not. Well, it's not it your fault, it but is. It is <laughs> you're staying the facts. But when I look at some of the big commercially successful act, acts of the '80s that could be at least somehow classified as power pop. It was about chicks, chicks, man. Like, okay, the Go Go's, mm -hmm. Beauty and the Beat, produced by Richard Goderer, if I'm pronouncing it right. Is it Goderer or Goderer? Whichever way it is. To, Sounds great either way. It. I like yours. I like yours. Okay, okay. Goderer. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. Beauty and the Beat, one of the great albums. One of the, in my opinion, one of the best debut albums of all time, and definitely a power pop record, hundred oh, yeah. percent. I don't know we if the Go Go's would claim that. We got the beat for sure. Yeah. I mean, if, if anything, yeah, they might have had a hard time because they came out of the, the sort of L.A. punk world and probably. Mm -hmm. But I think deep down, you know, that I've talked to Jane, I've talked to uh, uh, Charlotte. They they definitely love big beatly hooks. So they knew what they were doing. You know, yeah. they, they they weren't made by a producer, you know. Absolutely. And some of the other female artists that like just to mention them all kind of together that I feel were some of the, the marquee artists of 80s power pop. I mean, of course, if we're mentioning the Go-Go's, we need to mention the Bangles who came Absolutely. from Paisley Hero. Underground. Hero takes a fall. Come on. Yeah. And then they did uh, early in their career, the Bengals did Going Down to Liverpool, which was originally a Katrina and the Waves song. Katrina yeah, and the King Waves Root. were yeah. massive, were massive. Blondie definitely had some stuff that could be considered power pop. I'd call Kids in America by Kim Wilde. It has power pop elements. Scandal. Maybe not everything by Scandal, but Goodbye to You oh. is a power pop song. I, and Josie, Josie Cotton, even. Josie Cotton was power pop to me. That second scandal record, Beat of a Heart, uh, you know, uh, The Warrior, that's power pop. You I, would say The Warrior's power pop? I think so. I don't think but it's, it, I think it's one of those ones that's every everything to everyone who wants it to yeah. be. Like, it, sure. it, it could be, because it, it's like the Pat Benatar thing, you know, where you're, hmm. it, it, what is Pat Benatar's genre, ultimately? Right. I mean, I don't know. I mean, because A, it changed so much. But, you know, Hit Me With Your Best Shot could have been technically a power pop song, but it could also just be a good old fashioned rock and roll song like played next to Eddie Money. You right. know, like, I, don't, I don't know. Like, it's, it's hard. <laughs> but I, I would definitely say most of the I mean, it's up for every single one's up for debate. But I would definitely say like things like Goodbye to You or Walking on Sunshine or Kids in America or like all the entire convertible music album by um, Josie Cotton. A lot of elements of power pop to that. And of course, the Bengals, most obvious one. I would give you mentioned Josie Cotton because not many, not enough people do, you it, know, and, and definitely, uh, you know, that, that, that those there are some artists who kind of don't get mentioned enough, you know, like like uh, was it the Silvers? I think was one of the bands that we, we haven't talked oh, about. Holly and the Italians. I got oh, I was going to I have it written yeah. down here. Holly and the Italians. The original, Holly and the Italians. OK, the original. Were they, did they do is are they the ones that did tell that girl to shut up that Transvision Vamp later recorded the original version of tell that girl to okay. shut up. Uh, you know, uh, it, there's so a lot of girl group, all the bands that I just mentioned, particularly, of course, Josie Cotton, but definitely what uh, Holly and the Italians, a lot of girl group kind of 
60s elements to that. Of course, the oh. Bangles obviously had that. I think it's the 90s, but Crash by the Primitives is is a great power pop song. 89, you just got in. Okay, oh, we just, just squeaked in, in okay, there, 89. That's totally like that whole resurgence, that the whole movement in the UK where you had a woman fronting a power pop. You have Darling Buds, uh, Primitives, Transvision Vamp. It was almost a little wave there near the end of the 80s, the beginning of the 90s. I think the Darling Buds are completely underrated. People forget about them. That first record with Don't Go Around There. And oh, it's amazing. The whole thing front to back. But uh, we were talking about. Um, Katrina and the Waves. I don't want to gloss over them real quick. That is one of my bigger heartbreaks of the 80s. Is Katrina and the Waves massive overseas still beyond walking? They won up. they won Eurovision in the 90s. The last time England won Eurovision, because they never do, was with a Katrina and the Waves song. And they just kind of petered out here. Yeah, the second single, Do You Want Crying, is amazing. And it only got to like number 34. And that, that was it. But What's that, your that, reasoning for that? Yeah. I wish I knew the the weird picadillos of the American buying public. Who knows? You know, in, in our first edition, uh, Go All the Way, uh, Michael Shabon, who's like a great novelist, mm-hmm. is a huge power pop fan. And he, he wrote about the the underlying contradiction of power pop and the sadness. All the songs are like like, like uh, the Raspberry's Overnight Sensation. You know, they're, they're songs are, are Big Star's number one hit record, you know, <laughs> and, and they're not number one hit records or overnight and 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 the idea that there's a built-in almost self-effacing uh self-defeated quality to it like so a lot of times i don't even know why it is i wish i wish i could be more helpful there but i mean it's just there it's not surprising like that a band like bad finger flamed out you know um it's sad it's huge or jelly Jellyfish, they had a song called Joining a Fan Club on their second and last album. No and more the ghost, fan club. The ghost at number one. Was ghost at number one. Yeah, again, Good point. They were so, I think maybe there's, if there's anything we're on here is that possibly uh, pop, power pop specifically, and pop is concerned with pop. Uh, yeah. And that, and huh. that the subject matter, it's like in the old days, it don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing. Well, power pop seems to write songs about itself. You yeah. know? I mean, even the band, they were called Big Star. But they well, weren't. That's, and that's big yeah, stars. the built-in joke of Big Star. Even now, joke isn't the word, but the built-in sort of conceit of Big Star is that they that they were destined or doomed to be a cult band. And in their time, they became way more popular after Matthew Sweet and then uh, the Teenage Posies Fan Club and Teenage Fan Club. And everybody started like, you know, genuflecting to Alex Chilton and Chris Bell. And, you know, uh, well, the replacements who a lot of people might call power pop band did a whole song about Alex Chilton, which for probably some people was their introduction to who Alex Chilton was. And there are a lot of people who would call at least some elements of the replacements power pop. Absolutely. And that's the the thing that one of the the great arguments people have is they go, I wouldn't call replacements or the Ramones. I wouldn't call the replacements power pop. And and then I I think, well, again, it's that thing per song, like Mm -hmm. some songs are. I mean, Alex Chilton is a power pop song, the song. Um, you know, uh, uh on the bus, yeah. Uh, I'll uh, be you, probably. I would maybe sure. the later stuff for sure. The later probably. stuff, yeah, yeah. It's it's sad. This is a genre that seems to be uh, <laughs> we're, we're making ourselves all sad. We're like, yeah, why isn't this you more also, successful? Uh, Westerberg's solo song, World Class Fad, from the uh, from Dyslexic the- Heart, as well. Yeah. Those songs are power pop songs in mm-hmm. my book, mm-hmm. it, mine too. It's a genre that's littered with heartache. I mean, if you really look at it, they're like. You have for people like Phil Seymour, 
who had this one great hit that's just immortal, precious to me, and then he died. You know, and it, you're just like yeah. all this untapped potential that happened, and it's it's really sad. And Tommy Keen, who was on Guess yeah. couldn't get a hit no matter what. I was friends with Tommy, and he tells me a great story. He's on a second record. He's some, eating somewhere in Hollywood, and David Geffen's in the restaurant. And David Geffen like is told that one of his artists is here, and Geffen comes over to him and it's like, "When are you gonna write me a hit, kid?" And Tommy said he was just mm. paralyzed. <laughs> he had no oh, idea. Man. How to react? Oh man! And he was was it a joke? Was it a joke, David Geffen? It was or no? not a joke, and he was dropped right after that. But you know, luckily he was able to really soldier on independently. But just so many, so many heartaches like that from this genre—it's weird. Well, let's turn it around for a minute and talk about some of the elite success stories, just so we don't get too depressed. So, yeah. since we were mentioning Josie Cotton, who was you know iconically in Valley Girl. We have to talk about the other band that was in Valley Girl that played at the iconic date that was the Plimsolls. They were, I mean, I guess we can't say they were like a massively successful band, but they were a successful band. And certainly, you know, because of Valley Girl, that put them on the map or, you know, what, what are your thoughts on them, Paul? Well, A Million Miles Away still comes up on every uh, one of those power pop playlists mm -hmm. you know, from the spotify ones to the people making their own mixtapes mm -hmm. and or make cds or playlists or whatever and uh it is you know i've spoken with peter i actually know peter case fairly well now because i uh, i've he comes through the bay area a lot and i get up and play with him sometimes and it's like it's really interesting because he's become more known as a folk singer songwriter kind of guy bluesy mm -hmm. you know and he's great at it but he still has that power pop voice even whenever he sings like a, like a Lightning Hopkins song, I hear, I hear what could have been if he'd uh, if he'd taken. I don't think he likes to take power pop the way, you know. I think for him it was a passing fad uh, on his way to the Dylan influence in his life, you know, and that happens, you know. Uh, maybe for him it was you know something he did when he was younger. Uh, I don't think he has any regrets about it. Like he certainly speaks highly of those days, but. I asked him to contribute because he's a good writer. I asked him to contribute to one of our books. And, you know, he kind of did. He was writing a memoir. He didn't really feel like he wanted to be. Uh, I don't know what his reason was, but he didn't want to be part of the Power Pop uh, anthology, I think. Mm -hmm. and I, 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 again, there's that thing. Maybe for him, it for represents sure. something that didn't take off the way it was supposed to. Or maybe he's embarrassed by it. But I, I mean, a million miles away, just you hear it and it's, it's like song. up there with Tommy King's um, When Our Vows Break or something like yeah. Those songs that you just go, ah, that's a power pop song. Right. Uh, well, on and yeah, for sure. Some of the some of the other perfect songs. Some of these are one hit wonders or two hit wonders, but we, you know, John made a, a joke about it at the top of the show. So I mean, one of the, probably the biggest chart hits that can be classified as power pop of the eighties was what I like about you. Yeah. By the romantics, which has been remade over and over. I mean, that song was massive. And that song had kind of, I don't know, is it a sixties garage feel to it? I feel it had a little bit of that to it. It was much more of a, I think, yeah, in a, like an R&B kind of song. It, it could have been, it could have been like, a, you know, from the era of Shout or something like, you know, the original Shout, that is. And um, their, their big follow-up, in at least in the market I grew up in Toronto, uh, Talking in Your Sleep was mm -hmm. a little more, it's a great song, but it, it, it didn't, it had a little more like a laid backness to it that wasn't mm -hmm. quite as power pop, but mm -hmm. it was still very hooky. In fact, you could probably make a great power pop version of that song because yeah. the elements are there in the song. It sounds yeah. like a producer got a hold of it and was absolutely, like, John. Take this absolutely, apart, make it MTV ready. Whereas the follow up, one in a million, is the Romantics. Mm. You know, 
that sounds like a romantic song, but walking in your sleep was definitely, all right, we're going to tease the hair real high now. <laughs> uh, get rid of the red leather. We got black leather now, and you're going to walk through all these supermodels in the video. And, and mannequins, right? I feel yeah. like I'm thinking there were mannequins. And yeah. am I just, is that, was a fe was that a fever dream or was it like? Probably a combo, but boy, it got to number three. So I'm going to hey, throw a, ran a random thought here that Super Freak by Rick James and Talking in Your Sleep by the Romantics have a, the very similar structures to the point where I, I would love to do a mashup. I can't even imagine, but that don't, 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 don't. Someone listening, get in on, get on yeah. that. Someone make that happen. All right. Well, obviously this has been such a powerful conversation. <laughs> no pun intended. Actually, pun totally intended. Of course, when it's me, it's puns are always intended. This is way too much for one episode. Too much passion, as the smithereens would say. So we're going to have to get together for part two. Paul, can you come back and join us? I certainly can. Awesome. Well, a special thanks to our guest today, Paul Myers. His books on Power Pop are available now on Amazon and even in those physical bookstores. Make sure to listen also to his Record Store Day podcast with him and special guests. I've been Lindsay Parker, and I've been joined today by John Hughes. And we want to thank you for listening. Remember to give us a rate and review on your favorite podcast platform. And we'll catch you next time. This was Totally 80s, the podcast dedicated to the music of the greatest decade ever. Don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Totally80s. And please leave us a review on your favorite podcast platform. Until our next episode, catch you on the flip side. Swimsuit? Check. Sunscreen? Check. Phone charger? Check. Don't forget to pack the 5-Hour Energy. It fits great in a pocket or carry-on, and the alert feeling will help you arrive ready for anything. Now get 20% off when you use code 5HETRAVEL at 5HourEnergy.com. Expires April 30th. One-time use only. Not valid with other discounts. Remember, visit 5HourEnergy.com and use code 5HETRAVEL to save 20%.